live from Otterbein University, just north of Columbus, Ohio. This is the CNN New York Times Democratic presidential debate. Millions of people tuned into the most recent Democratic presidential debate. Medicare for all who want it. It's Medicare for all who can afford it. Medicare for all, whether you want it or not. And I don't understand. Linda Blumberg was one of them. My thoughts were, oh my God, this is so hard to watch. 7.4% plus a 4% income tax. When I listen to them talk about their health care proposals, most of the time I just thought nobody is going to understand what what you're talking about. I wrote the damn bill. And while Bernie wrote the bill, I read the bill. And that means it's that easy to see why people might be confused after watching the first slate of debates. They're hectic. Candidates look to score political points. They wrap sweeping generalizations into arguments why their plan is the right plan. While most of us turn off the TV with a collective shrug, Linda gets to work. Firing up one of the most influential machines in healthcare, a machine almost no one has heard of, one that can predict the future. From the Annenberg Studios at the University of Pennsylvania, welcome to Tradeoffs, a new podcast where we make sense out of the complicated, costly, and often counterintuitive world of healthcare. We're here to help make healthcare less of a black box. I'm Bapu Jenna, a physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and an economist at Harvard Medical School. I'm Dan Gorenstein, a reporter who covered the healthcare industry for the public radio show Marketplace. Today on our inaugural show, we dive deep into the healthcare debate dividing Democratic presidential contenders. Can a new report from a team of economists and programmers cut through the noise and bring some clarity to this fight? We're in a moment, a healthcare moment. At one level, it's exciting, right? Because you want the conversation to be how can we do better than we're doing now? For economist Linda Blumberg, the conversation has been loud and it's been lively. But in her view, it's been lacking one key thing, candor. What I always worry about is it's hard to have a serious conversation when everybody just thinks what they're proposing is all good without explaining what the trade-offs are. What Linda's really worried about, that this healthcare moment may slip away. She's seen it happen before. And that is where our story starts in 1993. It is a magic moment, and we must seize it. We must make this our most urgent priority. It's interesting, Dan. There are a lot of parallels between today's health care debate and President Bill Clinton's push for health reform. Giving every American health security. That is what we must do tonight. Right. Momentum to expand coverage. A whole bunch of jargon. Democrats bickering over the best plan. And Republicans painting it all as pure socialism. Into this political hothouse walked 27-year-old economist Linda Blumberg. She had landed a job in the Office of Management and Budget to help the Clinton White House tackle health reform. And she was thrilled. I had always wanted to be able to be in that kind of milieu. And these were all incredibly smart people working really hard and thinking about things in a really challenging environment. One of her first jobs, evaluating the impact of the president's plan. To do that, they needed numbers. Numbers like what would people pay in premiums and the impact on employers. Even with the best data, the administration couldn't answer those basic questions. George Mason economist Len Nichols, who worked with Linda at the time, says that blind spot played pretty poorly on Capitol Hill. We couldn't 
do a representation of any given state, let alone a given congressional district, which is really what Congress people want to know, you know, what's going to happen in my district. Staff struggled to pinpoint how much the president's plan would cost. It was a uh, baptism by fire. <laughs> Actually, everybody who tried to figure this out struggled. Even Congressional Budget Office Director Robert Reichauer, the ultimate authority on the issue, was stumped, as he told Congress. There's certainly a uh, great deal of uncertainty that surrounds our numbers and every other set of numbers. Are you quite sure you're within the ballpark? We're within the town the ballpark's in. I'm sure of that. We saw that as a fatal blow to getting health insurance to all Americans. Add in the political headwinds, and this goose was cooked. More than a year after President Clinton called on Congress to pass comprehensive health care reform, Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell has pronounced the legislation dead. That moment passed, but the problem didn't, with millions remaining uninsured. It wasn't after the Clinton administration didn't get comprehensive health care reform that everybody said, oh, well, that's it. We'll never get anything. We might as well just you know, move on to work on housing or you know, education or whatever. Len Nichols and Linda Blumberg had learned an important lesson. We can't change the politics, but what we can do is improve the numbers so that the next generation of politicians can make better decisions. And that is what they did. First, they set up shop at the Urban Institute, a center-left think tank in Washington, D.C. Then they ask questions. What do employers do about their decisions to offer health insurance? Who decides to stay uninsured? Dozens and dozens of questions. What do people faced with eligibility for a public How program? people of different character? What do workers do about their decisions? Who's getting coverage and who's not? not? And built a machine designed to answer all of them. Really? Urban was building what we economists call a micro-simulation model. It's a piece of software used by a lot of folks, like epidemiologists trying to forecast the spread of disease, and urban planners considering how road changes may affect traffic. It allows you to use an enormous amount of data inputs to simulate a near-endless array of scenarios and ultimately end up with just a few outputs. Outputs like, what will this healthcare reform cost, and who will it cover? To put it simply, it's a sophisticated tool for predicting policy what-ifs. It allows you to paint a picture of something that people haven't seen yet and to understand what that could look like in the future. To peer into that future, the two urban economists needed a ton of data, something hard to come by in the 1990s. There is no you know, data reservoir where you go, you open the door, and you get everything you want. It's a lot of work. Economist Doug Holtz-Eakin ran the Congressional Budget Office in the early 2000s and now heads up the conservative think tank American Action Forum. So you need poor people, you need rich people, you need people who have their own insurance, people who have their employer insurance. And it requires an enormous amount of data that were not meant to be merged. It takes years. Once Linda and Len tracked all that data down, the team pioneered two critical innovations. First, they painted the most accurate picture of the private insurance market that any modeler had ever seen. That made it much easier to predict how people and employers would respond to potential health care reforms. Second, to build trust in their model, they made sure all that stitched together data could predict something that everybody could observe, the current health insurance landscape. The thinking, if you can reproduce today, which everyone can see, you can more credibly predict tomorrow. That's what we call establishing your baseline. And once you've done that, Doug Holtz-Eakin says you can start having fun 
or, or at least what passes for fun with an econ kind of crowd. Now we've replicated the world once. Let's change an aspect of the world. Let's toss $100 billion of federal money into subsidies. How will that world change? Linda and Len were finally ready to answer these hard health reform questions. But they had one small problem. Their computers. They were slow. Or they were crashing. So Linda and Len took turns sitting up with their simulator. Since it took so many hours to run it, If you left it run all night and two hours after you went to sleep, it stopped running, then you were wasting eight hours the next day having to start it again. So we used to get up in the middle of the night and check it. (laughs) A lot has changed since those babysitting days. Len Nichols left. Uh, Economist John Hollihan stepped in, along with a crack team of PhDs, programmers, and mathematicians. Urban's model grew up and over the years had kids. Not quite, but modelers around the country, including the Congressional Budget Office and RAND, did follow Urban's lead. All of this, of course, was helped by the evolution of computers and the creation of new data sets. Most people have never heard of Linda and John, but over the last 20 years, their numbers have played an invisible but essential role in shaping U.S. health policy. In 2006, Massachusetts lawmakers used their work to push through an ambitious health reform bill that ultimately became the blueprint for Obamacare. I want to thank the many, many people who are critical to crafting the bold health care initiative that I'm about to sign. I have the opinion of the court in case... In 2015, Chief Justice John Roberts cited Urban in an opinion preserving Obamacare. King versus Burwell. That was a showstopper and perhaps the most high-profile moment. President-elect Trump has added more pressure onto Republicans to move... In late 2016, Republicans had geared up to repeal Obamacare and make good on President-elect Trump's pledge. Republicans have 52 votes in the Senate. They need at Linda least and John 50 cranked up their microsimulator to measure the impact. The result? 30 million people would lose coverage if Republicans repealed Obamacare without immediately replacing it. That number made national headlines. We were able to move really fast, and that at that moment felt incredibly important given where the policy process was moving. The blowback was so intense, conservative lawmakers abandoned that strategy. I think that impact is probably the thing that I will take away as as one of the most meaningful things I've done in my career. When we come back, we look at Linda and John's latest paper, comparing Medicare for All and the so-called public option and the impact it may have in this moment. I look at this as almost like a capstone project. (laughs) I actually feel very jazzed about this. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We're back. What's Linda and John's one number that's going to make headlines this time? Spoiler alert, this paper, it's not just about one number, it's about a bunch. 
In partnership with the Commonwealth Fund, the two urban economists have analyzed eight different plans, from technocratic tweaks to ambitious overhauls. The point is to understand our options, and that starts with getting at the heart of the Democratic debate. Medicare for all, the approach backed by Senators Sanders and Warren, versus the public option, a strategy favored by former Vice President Biden and Mayor Buttigieg. People have been saying, oh, single payer is wonderful. Oh, public option is wonderful. Economist Doug Holtz-Eakin. Of course, they're all wonderful in the abstract. Now let's put them head to head and see where are they similar, where are they different. Get out your pencils and put your health policy hard hats on. It's time to talk trade-offs. Let's start by defining these two plans, since there's a lot of confusion. Sure. Good idea. One quick note. The plans Urban analyzed resemble those proposed by some of the leading Democratic contenders. Medicare for all, sometimes called single payer, replaces our current system with a plan that's run and paid for by the federal government. And the public option. At its core, it basically preserves our current system, adding a publicly run plan to compete with private insurance. There are dozens of trade-offs you could tackle in this 70-page report. But to keep this simple, we're going to focus on just two. Who gets covered and what this will cost. The first one is easy. Medicare for all lives up to its name, covering everybody with the exact same plan. And it's more generous than what most of us have now, including dental and long-term care. The public option covers every American and offers roughly the same benefits we get now but it would exclude 7 million undocumented immigrants. Okay, Papu, the second trade-off, costs. Let's start with the total cost. This could be pretty tricky. Here's how I explain that to my students. Imagine a pie chart. Each wedge represents part of the total economy. One wedge is what our entire country spends on health care. You, me, states, the federal government, employers, all of us. Even if we stick with our current system, that wedge is going to keep growing, totaling $52 trillion over the next decade alone. Under Urban's analysis, Medicare for All would accelerate that growth by an extra $7 trillion over that same time period. That's because we give more care to more people. Under the public option, that $52 trillion healthcare wedge would actually shrink a tiny bit. Linda and John say that's because a public insurance plan would be cheaper and force private insurers to compete, driving down what we currently pay. So why do we care about the size of this gigantic slice of policy pie? Because the bigger it gets, the less we have to spend on things like education and public safety. Now let's talk about who covers the cost for all of this deliciousness. Under Medicare for All, the federal government picks up basically the whole bill. Their spending would increase by $34 trillion over the next 10 years. Under the public option, federal government spending goes up too, but by a lot less, $1.5 trillion. Here's why we're looking at the federal government's portion of this total tab. When the feds have bills to pay, they usually turn to taxes. Most of us would probably see a tax hike under Medicare for All, but out-of-pocket costs would also be eliminated. So on the whole, a lot of us would end up spending less. The public option would also likely raise taxes, but not by nearly as much. There'd still be out-of-pocket costs, but less than we have today. So just like with Medicare for All, most of us would end up saving more on our health care. 
the question in the Democratic debate for the politicians and the voters. Which imperfect solution do you prefer? The public option, which would give coverage to 26 million more Americans, cut spending for most of us, and preserve this system, a system where some people can't afford care. Or Medicare for All, which would cover everybody equally, eliminate out-of-pocket costs, hike total health care spending even more, and replace a flawed system with a great big unknown. The path you prefer will depend on how you feel about things like taxes, spending, and whether health care is a right. What Linda and John point out is no matter which course you choose, one fact is certain. In order to make progress here, you've got to spend money. There's just no doubt. It's just a matter of how much progress you're going to make for how much money you're going to spend. You don't need a fancy modeling tool to predict politicians' response to this paper. It's a political Rorschach test. Each candidate will see what they want to see. Economist Len Nichols says it's ammunition for candidates like Biden and Buttigieg who oppose Medicare for all. I think it's going to give credibility to those who argue there are other ways than single payer to accomplish our goals. And it's going to challenge the credibility of those who say that only single payer can accomplish our goals. Dr. Kavita Patel, a former director of policy in the White House under Barack Obama, says for the Sanders and Warren camps, they'll downplay it or dispute it. I don't think it's going to stop the people who are currently proponents of single payer But if you're Bernie Sanders, then you're going to look at that, and his campaign obviously will, and they're going to poke holes at it because it really takes aim at one of his basic principles. So we've explained how carefully Urban curates all the data that goes into their model. But the reality is all of that data is from the past. To figure out how the future will look, the team makes some educated guesses based on the best available research. For example, their paper predicts how many people would ditch their insurance at work if they could get it cheaper from the federal government. But to answer that, Linda and John have to comb through the literature, looking for real-world clues about how things may play out. Dan, here's the dirty little micro-simulation secret that's it's really not a secret. Every model is based on some guesswork and assumptions. And that is a source of criticism for this kind of work. Even if the analysis is run correctly, depending upon what the assumptions are, that can have massive ramifications. Harvard physician Adam Gaffney is president of Physicians for a National Health Program. I'm worried that um, we're going to see a particularly high cost for single payer. I would like to see fair assumptions about savings and costs. Adam Gaffney argues that in a 2016 urban paper analyzing Sanders' earlier Medicare for All plan, Lyndon John lowballed how much the federal government would save by negotiating with doctors, hospitals, and drug companies. And additional savings from downsizing an administrative army of billers, coders, and collectors. Both sides agree lots of money will be saved, but the question, says John, is how much? How much can you push hospital rates down and physician fees down? without causing just massive chaos. No matter what assumptions Linda and John use, advocates like Adam Gaffney are likely to disagree about how low Washington will go. When dealing in these sorts of assumptions, it's impossible to know who's right. Look, Linda is the first to admit, there's a lot we don't know. And doing this work has opened her and the team up to criticism in the past. And she figures it's going to happen this time, too. Can I say that, you know, we're, we're absolutely giving you a perfect answer of what's going to happen when 
these guys turn the crank and we get simulation results. No, there's no perfect answer. There's no perfect answer because there's always, you know, some error and uncertainty. In anticipation of the pushback, Urban has made sure to show its work. The report's appendix, some 7,000 words, details the inner workings of their model, including their assumptions. So here's the scene, Bapu. It's almost like actors on a stage for a play we've all seen. Candidates primed to spin the paper. Medicare for all critics ready to pounce. Linda and John hoping, cautiously, for impact. Everyone in their usual place. But does the show end differently this time? Linda doesn't know, but this work guarantees her one small satisfaction. There will be numbers. You know, this is a a moment where serious people are thinking about serious proposals. You know, this is not just a math exercise. This is an exercise to inform good policy because the people underlying each of these numbers need good policy. Once again, Linda has gotten her work into the hands of people who can do something with it. The rest is up to them. I'm Dan Gorenstein. I'm Bapu Jenna, and this is Trade-Offs. Trade-Offs is produced by Emily Patterson, Jessica Silverman, Jamie Song, Hey, it's Courtney Summers, Adam Yaffe, This is Sarah Dykstra, Ryan Levy, Safa Brown, Victoria Stern, I'm Sai Nick Pay, Leslie Walker, and Andrew Perella. Original music composed by Ty Sitterman. Additional music by Blue Dot Session, Echo and Maw, Bright Seed, Parallel Park, and The Difference. Additional thanks to Hillary Nelson, Jennifer Pinto Martin, John Jackson, Graham Ball, Rich Cardona, Jacob Lowry, Brian Smokler, Tom Mendelson, Andy Abramowitz, Erica Feldman, and the Tradeoffs Advisory Board. Tradeoffs is supported by the California Healthcare Foundation. Additional support from the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics and the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. If you like the show, leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at TradeoffsPod. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.